when you look at though what it takes to execute an air defense takedown and establish air superiority, it is one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing that a modern Air Force does. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The U.S. Air Force's Air Combat Command is the sharp end of America's air power's spear. As its commander, General Mark Kelly, prepares to hand the keys over to his successor, he'll reflect on where the command is and where it's going, and we'll have a look at this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, if there's a theme to this week's headlines, it's things in the sky that were unexpected. If you live near Klamath Falls, Oregon, you may know that Kingsley Field was going to be getting F-15 EXs. But no, the unexpected thing in the sky will be F-35s. The Air Force has changed its mind and is making Kingsley Field the Air Force's third formal training unit for the Lightning II. If you're hanging out at Mid-America Airport in Mascouda, Illinois, you might see the MQ-28 Ghost Bat in the sky. Yes, that's only been tested so far in Australia, but Boeing has brought one over to the US for testing, conveniently close to Scott Air Force Base. Keep your eyes peeled, you might get a look. And if you were in Moscow, you weren't expecting to see drones in the sky. Ukraine and Russia have played game of drones back and forth. We're used to seeing Russian drones over Kiev, but as you covered with Sam Bendett on Monday, and folks should listen to that if they want to understand what's really going on there, now there are attack drones in the skies over Moscow, which I don't think anybody expected a year and a half ago. Another thing that you won't see in the sky is a Thai F-35. Thailand thought they were getting F-35s. They asked how to get into the program and were told that well, there's a lot of lead time to build infrastructure and support for a fifth-generation aircraft. It might be that they were turned down, and that's putting a brave face on rejection. The Thai government went ahead and announced that they're not getting F-35s. One can't help thinking that the constrained supply might be starting to affect the order book. The Government Accountability Office found that DOD lacks oversight of F-35 spare parts, with 19,000 spare parts somewhere in the global spares pool awaiting disposition instructions from the Joint Program Office for anywhere from a few months up to five years. That puts me in mind of the air race pilot, Daryl Greenemeyer, who with some others went to a number of surplus parts sales and were able eventually to put together their own F-104. Don't expect to be able to do that with these vaguely directed lightning parts. And the government of Malaysia is opening its wallet, announcing contracts for 18 FA-50s from the South Koreans, four Black Hawk helicopters from the U.S., and a couple of ATR-72 maritime patrol aircraft. And hey, if you're wondering why we haven't mentioned the near miss between a Chinese J-16 and an RC-135, well, Vago covered that in his conversation with General Mark Kelly. Let's get to it. 
JJ, uh, thanks very much. Daryl Greenemeyer, what a great uh, choice. Uh, a legendary uh, air racer, obviously uh, started with Bearcats and of course mm -hmm. flew the red, legendary Red Baron uh, F-104. Um, and uh, when you were talking about unidentified objects, I thought you were going to talk about the NASA uh, UFO meeting uh, yesterday, uh, a year after uh, the space agency started its unidentified aerial phenomena uh, study. Why the U-turn? Uh, on Kingsley Field? Well, the bottom line is that they wanted more throughput for F-35s. That plus, remember, the Air Force is not going to be getting as many F-15 EXs as is originally expected. It went from 144 down to 80, and now it's somewhere in the low 100s. So they may not have needed the additional capacity there, but they sure did for F-35 training. Uh, and give us a little bit of uh, clarity, right, on uh, the GAO's uh, lack of oversight on F-35 uh, spare parts, right? Because some people will hear this and not exactly be sure what we're talking about. What are you talking about, about those 19,000 spare parts? When you look at their report, it's clear that the joint program office that runs the F-35 program have ordered a whole lot of spare parts. They're out there in the field somewhere, but many of them have not been entered into a formal accounting system to keep track of. Now, that's the kind of thing that really gets the GAO exercised. But ultimately, it comes down to a question of knowing where what we bought actually is and who can use it. Their side of the story, at least, is that the government doesn't know where all those parts are. Uh, that is not a good look, uh, clearly. Uh, for uh, one of the largest combat aircraft uh, programs uh, in the world. Um, you mentioned uh, the uh, FA-50, which uh, I think is uh, certainly interesting. Uh, uh, the um, uh, Korean aerospace industries uh, T-50 trainer that uh, the company developed in partnership with Lockheed Martin, uh, and it was always intended to become a light combat uh, aircraft. And again, we've seen that uh, with the T-7 as well, where Boeing and Saab have said, hey, this can be a, a light uh, future uh, fighter. T-7 delayed. Does this sort of leave the field open for uh, the Korean aerospace guys and the Lockheed guys to sort of clean up on that lower end of the market? And, and does that become a more attractive airplane ultimately? If for those who like Thailand, you know, don't want to buy F-35s, does that give kind of an alternate airplane? Because in a couple of years, the concern is the United States won't have a fighter uh, in that sort of lighter, simpler, uh, not as expensive F-16 class aircraft. Sure. And what you're seeing in part is a an artifact of the evolution of the F-16 into increasingly complicated variants. So folks looking for something down at the bottom end, we've seen Polish interest in the F-A-50 as well, uh, are, are opening their aperture to consider planes they might not have before. And not only are the South Koreans counting on that, the Turks are counting on that. They've got a light fighter program. All over the world, folks are trying to figure out, is there a new opportunity being created by the great European fighter hand-me-down festival, where everybody with an F-16 is getting ready to send it to Ukraine, and they're looking for something to backfill that, which might not be an F-35. Uh, in, indeed, and the Ukrainians now making clear that the magic number is 100 uh, F-16s uh, that they're looking uh, for uh, donations. So it's going to be interesting to see if they get um, those kind of numbers, because some of these airplanes have got a lot of mileage on them, right? They do, and they're going to need, in many cases, updates before the Ukrainians even get them, before they can begin operating. But that's a tail-by-tail -tail analysis. 
do you, do you think it's more uh, what Sash Chusa has been saying on the business podcast that actually the Ukrainians are probably don't need to do that much upgrading of these jets at all, that they have an immediate need and will put them to immediate use? This isn't a sort of long-term midlife update kind of situation uh, that actually for their purposes, these jets might not even last that long in combat on frontline duty? It's true, unfortunately, that they might not last that long. But look, the Ukrainians are looking for anything that they can use for, to perform the ground attack mission, right? They can do that with UAVs, but only carry so much ordnance. When you've got a situation like, say, you had in Bakhmut, where the city is encircled, being able to put a lot of ordnance on the ground in order to clear a path for the defenders of the city to exit or to break the siege uh, is something that the Ukrainians are really looking for. So why do they need it in numbers? They're not going to get very large aircraft like bombers that can carry a large weight of bombs. Instead, they have to do that with a number of smaller airplanes, each carrying a smaller weight of bombs. Um, and I should point out to the audience, right, that since uh, 1973 uh, to the present, some 5,000 F-16s have been built, right? So there are a couple of airframes out there for them to use if they want to find them. There's a good bit out there, and the success of the F-35 in foreign markets day by day is making more F-16s available. Indeed. So shall we get to the main event? Well, I think that General Kelly is waiting. And now here's Vago's conversation with General Mark Grace Kelly, Commander of Air Combat Command. General Kelly, thanks so very much uh, for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. It's good to be here today. Thanks for uh, making time for me. Uh, an absolute honor. Um, obviously, all eyes are on lessons uh, from uh, Ukraine. Uh, the war was stalemated given that neither side was able to es uh, establish air superiority, which would be a number one imperative for the United States uh, and its NATO allies. Uh, that's likely to change, obviously, as the country gets F-16s. Uh, more broadly, what are the lessons of this conflict that you and your team have been absorbing that are shaping future planning, equipment, training, to better deter any potential adversary in a future conflict, and if necessary, when, whether they're in Europe or the Pacific? No, great question. And obviously, as you mentioned, there'll be not hundreds, there'll be thousands of lessons that come out of the Ukraine conflict. Some of them, uh, frankly, uh, just based on human personality, people will learn what they kind of want to learn out of the Ukraine fight. Not necessarily mean it's wrong, but for airmen in our nation, what we have to take a look back at is, you know, when you go back, you know, 32 years ago, you know, the U.S. and its coalition, you know, executed an air campaign for six weeks, which enabled a low casualty 100-hour uh, ground campaign. Um, and so when you contrast what's going on in Ukraine, it's really more akin to what was going on in World War One, where if neither side can establish air superiority, uh, it will degrade, whether that be in 1914 or in 2022, to a grinding artillery duel and bloody trench warfare with not thousands, but tens of thousands of casualties on both sides. And it won't be a hundred hour ground campaign, it'll be a years long ground campaign. And so we're seeing that uh, play out. And so when you look at, though, what it takes to execute an air defense takedown and establish air superiority, it is one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing, that a modern Air Force does. And so uh, that's why we appropriately focus on the air domain and the electromagnetic spectrum, because we've got to be able to, the Joint Forces count on us 
to establish air superiority and execute near defense uh, takedown uh, for obvious reasons. And that takes a first class Air Force uh, like we executed in Desert Storm. And But when you look at what the ingredients it takes to field a first class Air Force, uh, it is neither easy in terms of equipping and training and organization, nor is it cheap. Uh, but what I would offer that when it comes to a nation's you know, reputation, uh, blood and treasure and human capital, the only thing more expensive than a first class Air Force is a second class Air Force. So we're seeing that uh, play out. You know, the investments that Russia and Ukraine made over the last 48 years essentially set the conditions that we would not see either side uh, have the ability to establish air superiority. And so we're seeing that play out. Um, that doesn't mean there's not brave, competent people on both sides. It's just that the conditions were preordained, essentially, based on their organization, training, and equipping. The neither side was going to be able to establish air superiority. And it's unfortunate, especially for Ukraine, obviously, because they're on the side of right, um, that we're having to go through this very long, bloody uh, campaign over. Um, let me uh, pull on that. And we're going to talk uh, a little bit about hardware because unfortunately, um, the Air Force is, is not getting the resources from a capitalization standpoint, no matter how hard the secretary and the chief uh, fight for those uh, resources. And I should point out to the audience, you lead the 150,000 uh, airmen that are the pointy end of that spear and operating from about to almost 250 locations uh, around the planet. Um, China has been working very hard to not only um, you know, crack our military secrets through cyber and espionage uh, and OPM hacks and what have you, but according to a story that ran today in the New York Times, is using AI to vacuum up as much open source intelligence uh, on the US military, while very carefully trying to shield as much of its own capabilities as, as, as possible. When it comes to capabilities, do we know them as well as they might know us? And what are the capabilities, whether on the Chinese side or on the Russian side or anywhere else, that worry you the most and should be sort of foremost in the way that we're thinking about the problem? Yeah, I hadn't read the New York Times story, but I will try to get to it later uh, today in terms of what they are absorbing through open source um, AI. But it would, it would surprise me that they're not doing that in kind of their own data miner, advanced data miner kind of um, enclave. But when, when, you, when you look at the PRC and the U.S. military, where they're at today. Uh, frankly, if you look back over the past, I'll just say two decades, um, they've been on, we've been on divergent paths over the past two decades, in my mind. You know, the PRC um, is very well documented that they cut their, you know, they, each, each military has hard choices and hard decisions that they have to make. And so the PRC cut their ground force in half uh, is a conscious decision now the PLA to fund the airspace, cyber, and naval force they needed to fight the U.S. Um, and the exact same time over the last two decades, the U.S. was challenged uh, to adequately fund our not just our air force but our space, our cyber, and our naval force because we were called out of a pretty obvious demand signal at a 9/11 uh, to resource what became the ground force counterinsurgency crisis of the week for 1,000 you know, consecutive weeks there. And I'm not saying the folks that made those decisions were wrong, because again, there was a rather huge demand signal out of 9-11. It's just a factual divergence of the past two decades of a national focus. And so where that ends up is 
obviously divergent paths ends up in divergent places. And so now you've, you're, we're looking at a PRC, which has had, you know, the benefit of our two decades in the Middle East working counterinsurgency efforts uh, to build up and train and organize and equip for a high-end peer fight. And so when you look back at the U.S. history, whether it be uh, Korea, whether it be Vietnam, we always pivoted off of a uh, superpower force, if you would, to engage a regional fight, a regional fight in Korea, a regional fight right. in the desert, a regional fight in the Vietnam. But now we are in a very different place coming off of two decades of counterinsurgency. We're trying to pivot a military that is acclimated to counterinsurgency fight for two decades back to a peer war fight. That's a very, very different set of challenges and we're working at them hard and a lot of stuff is going good, but most of it is uh, late to need. And so uh, whether that be E7, whether that be NGAD, whether that be JATAM, whether that be EC37, there's a lot of stuff that's really going good. It's just um, late to need because uh, we've been a busy military for quite a, quite a while. It's interesting you uh, pointed it out, right? You guys are refining a whole range of operational concepts to deter future conflict. And if, if needed uh, fight, I'm not going to say win prevail is more like it uh, given the kind of war games I've been privy to where it's, it's bloody and we end up prevailing. I'm not sure if it, you could call that winning uh, you, you know, that stuff better than I do, obviously um, we're working on, you know, agile combat employment to try to get in uh, closer. We're developing, as you mentioned, new systems, whether it's NGAD or uncrewed uh, systems like the collaborative combat aircraft. It's, it was about three years ago that the outgoing U.S. Army Chief Jim McConville told me that he saw sort of a, I don't want to get into windows that get people in trouble, but at the time he said, he, he was like, look, unless we get on the right vector in about two years, we won't be in the right place five years from now. Uh, and, and that's really been the, the focus. From your standpoint, are we on track to deliver the capabilities we need and the volume we need to deliver them so that the next ACC uh, cruiser Wilsbach is going to be your successor. Mm -hmm. He's a PACAF commander uh, and cruiser's successor is going to have the capabilities they need at that sharp end. Do, do you think that we're going to have what we need in the volume we need it if God forbid we need it, if, if that yeah. question makes sense? That's a really good question. And so much of the answer is under the heading of it depends. It kind of depends on a specific timeline. It kind of depends on a specific security challenge where it's full kinetic or if it's just a bit of a dust up, et cetera, et cetera. But given a general answer to a general question, what I'd say is I think we'll have the right capabilities. I think we'll be more challenged in the capacity realm. And so um, that's what that's what frankly leads us to where we've got to really embrace our allies and partners in this effort because no one nation can do this by themselves. Um, you, you know, just as a fact of, it's just a sheer fact that we are a significantly smaller force, um, whether that be our naval force, our air force, et cetera. And frankly, our allies bring significant um, capability to any of these challenges. It doesn't matter if you're talking about our NATO partners uh, and what they bring or our partners in the Pacific, you know, all of our treaty allies, you know, whether it be Japan or Australia, Korea, et cetera, they bring some really high-end um, capability. And very often uh, they're, they're not just, you know, uh, we can, don't just interact with them, we can interchange with them because they, we train together and they operate really similar equipment. So we've got to have our allies and partners uh, into these really, really high-end 
challenges. And I think that's frankly where we're going to have to count on the capacity numbers, the capability. I think we're going to be in decent shape. I, I want to get um, to the capability uh, question because I've got a couple of hardware questions, but I want to ask you uh, about uh, culture change. Um, it's a key element that you discuss regularly when you uh, meet with uh, reporters. I, I know you talk about this uh, to airmen all the time, and it's actually the number one characteristic of a leader is to be able to drive that culture change. The chief and the secretary have been uh, urging greater speed, you know, trying to get people to have that sense of uh, urgency, accelerate change or lose as the chief. And hopefully soon the new chairman uh, is is going to take to the, the broader force. But I would submit um, Jim McConville has been on this, uh, you know, you know, General McConville well, he's mm -hmm. been on this journey for a dozen years uh, to try to drive change and it's and it's paying dividends. What does all of this mean to you as a major command commander? And are you moving fast enough? How do you translate this guidance? Um, and and what's the key to successful culture change? And how do you measure success from your standpoint? Yeah, really good question. And so you mentioned earlier, like the agile combat employment, uh, mission type orders, you know, the the uh, empowered uh, airmen that we have, the multi-cable airmen that we have. And so the first thing you have to match your words with actions. And so, for example, uh, if we go into a high-end fight and we expect to disaggregate to help our survivability, when we disaggregate, we're going to disaggregate our leadership. Uh, down to captains and master sergeants at these small hubs. And our comms are going to be challenged by any thinking adversary. And so when we have these younger airmen uh, operating out on the frontier and they're making decisions, uh, A, you've got to practice that in training. The first time that they do that cannot be in a kinetic fight. So you've got to do that and culturally inculcate that in your daily operations. And guess what? When you have a captain and master sergeant make decisions, there's a zero percent chance they're going to be 100% right all the time. And so when they make a decision because they've taken initiative and they've taken the mission type orders and they've taken your commander intent and they somehow make a decision that's different than the one you might make, might make you have to embrace that because they're the ones at the line of scrimmage. They're the ones calling the audibles and they're making the best decision they can with an environment that, frankly, they understand uh, probably better than you do back at your air conditioning headquarters. And so uh, we've got to embrace that. And when we operate off these austere areas, they're not going to be pristinely swept. Uh, there's going to be coral. There's going to be rock. There's going to be stuff like that. And guess what? We're going to suck up a piece of coral or something like that in an engine, and we're going to ruin a multi-million dollar engine. We cannot vapor lock not if, but when that happens, because it's going to happen in a high-end kinetic fight. And so what we have to do is match our mission-type orders, our agile combat employment, our multi-cable airmen with day-to-day -day training and support for the efforts that they're going to execute and the decisions they make and have their backs when the decision they make doesn't end up with a pristine response. You know, about uh, training, um, let me uh, pull pull on that a little bit. Both China and Russia have been uh, increasingly unprofessional uh, in their mid-air encounters, in particular. A Russian jet collided with a USMQ-9 over the Black Sea, and a Chinese jet just the other day thumped, uh, to use a Cold War phrase, an uh, RC-135 uh, reconnaissance aircraft uh, operating in international waters uh, over the Pacific, over the South China Sea. During the Cold War, 
such instances were tragically very commonplace uh, and occasionally led to uh, trading of paint. Um, and certainly on the naval side of things, how are you preparing your force to better handle such gray instances uh, that are merely going to be rising over time? And are there any Cold War lessons, uh, right? I mean, you started your career at the height of the Cold War, arguably, right? It was around mid-80s, mid 1986, if I recall correctly. Uh, right. what, are, what are some lessons that are worth dusting off uh, that a uh, 1980, 86 uh, F-15 drive in Grace, uh, Grace Kelly would recognize? I'd say the first thing when it comes to our relations with uh, a peer adversary like China or Russia is that at the end of the day, we deserve what we tolerate. And so we have to you know, uphold the standards of our performance. And as you've heard from Indo-PACOM or OST policy, we will fly, sail, and operate anywhere in international waters, international airspace and cyberspace in the Arctic, et cetera, where law allows. And so people that are trying to change the laws by fear and intimidation, we just have to stand our ground and not cede, you know, uh, new territory in the global commons to them and make it one of their sovereigns. As far as, you know, uh, years ago when you, we had a Chinese airplane have a midair with a Navy EP-3 or a Russian airplane collide with an MQ-9, we just need to understand that different air forces have different levels of expected professionalism and performance. The fact that a Russian cannot control his closure uh, to the point where he avoids having a midair. Um, I don't know any other air forces that would give someone a medal for having a midair, but if that's considered standard practice within the Russian air force, we just have to accept it uh, for what it is. Uh, no different than when a Chinese airplane ran into a Navy EP-3. Um, if these aviators don't have the skill sets where they can avoid running two airplanes together, you know, we just may have, need to make sure that our air crew are aware that they have different levels of performance and professionalism incompetence. But at the end of the day, we know that we're on the side of right when we're operating the global commons, international airspace, water space, Arctic, et cetera, and uh, operate, you know, due regard uh, within the laws and stand our ground. And we'll end up being, we'll, we'll end up being in a decent, decent place at the end of the day. We see some unprofessional behavior also over the Middle East. And uh, we address that uh, with different lines of effort. Uh, with uh, our counterparts in, in Russia. And this is just part of high, high-end competition. The most aggressive competition that we will continue to see is where a peer adversary wants to turn a global common into one of their sovereigns, whether that be you know, Russia turning Crimea and other parts of Ukraine into their sovereign, whether it be China turning parts of the Pacific into their sovereign or Russia turning part of the Arctic into their sovereign. This will be continued to be high-end competition territory. We can expect this continued action. We just, again, at the end of the day, we deserve what we tolerate. And, and, and so your point in that is, if they're colliding with you over the Black Sea, you keep operating over the Black Sea. If they're um, having, you know, trying to keep you from operating in the South China Sea, you have to keep operating. Do not cede that ground, uh, right? Otherwise, you're rewarding their bad behavior. You're exactly right. And I think we've done a good job with, uh, especially with today's day and age, whether it be the video evidence that came off the MQ-9 or the video evidence that came off of the uh, River Joint RC-135, we basically call them out um, in the public sphere in our messaging campaigns for this bad behavior and let, let the global public see for what it is, the uh, professionalism of the performance of uh, these aviators or sailors, as the case may be 
around the globe. And that frankly helps with our messaging and shows that we're on the side of right. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to the hardware portion uh, of the uh, discussion, uh, as much as I would love to uh, focus on strategery with you. Um, we're in the midst, you know, as you said, from a resourcing standpoint, um, we did have another focus. We're a little bit late to the game. We're moving as quickly as we can to try to field these capabilities. Um, I also believe in longer range munitions, and I'm going to ask you a munitions question as well. We're in the midst of what is a historic sh uh, fighter shortfall. Uh, that's only going to get worse. The Air Force is buying 48 F-35s a year, 24 F-15EXs to replace um, an Air Force that was capitalized four decades ago at 200 airplanes a year, uh, ultimately. How do you do this, General Kelly, uh, and your successors do this without ending up with either too few airplanes simply to get the job done or units that might exist only in name, but actually not have any airplanes, right? I mean, how do you do this because this is hard math that there's no way around. I mean, you you can call it savings, you can call it, I don't have any more money to spend, but but how do we do this? Yeah, really good question. Cause it is hard math. It's a math equation that we work on every week here. And so the uh the upside to getting 72 new fighters a year is because we need that high-end capability and we need that capacity. The challenge that comes with that is that means there's going to be units in conversion. And when there's a unit in conversion, well, it's 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 converting. It's not available for day-to-day -day right. use because we're training the maintainers, we're working the infrastructure, and we're working the aviators into a new weapon system. So it's an imperative that we get folks transitioned into these new weapon systems as fast as we can because we, we don't have enough capacity to keep any unit benched for any length of time. The other piece of it is, is it kind of goes to the Im implication of your question. That is, what's the right balance of high-end capability and high capacity? And it's also a topic that we work on, you know, every day. Um, you know, if we if we divest, we can divest our fighter capacity, our our F-16s and our F-15s. Um, but the key caveat is, is if you divest your capacity fighters and you haven't divested your capacity mission, your mandatory capacity missions, you'll still do those missions, but you'll now do them with your high-end capability fighters. For example, you know, when we wake up every day, we have F-22s up in Alaska at Joint Base Silmendorf Richardson, and John Van Herc, um, who's the NORAD Northcom commander, he's more than happy to protect the U.S. skies with an F-22, and they do a great job at doing that. But should we get into a higher uh, confrontation with anyone out in the Pacific and we want to send those long-range killers to do some long-range killing out there, well, um, the first objective of the National Defense Strategy is homeland defense. Right. And Joe Van Herc is more than happy to execute homeland defense with those F-22s, and he'll do so until something else shows up to execute that mission in their place, i.e. an F-16 or an, F an F-15. And so... There's always a balance in a trade space there. And so we've got to keep the right, got to keep the right balance. And so we work with that. We have that discussion routinely. Uh, I get a bill every day, essentially for six, 60, six zero fighter squadrons to right. do our operations around the globe, uh, whether it be the Middle East or in Europe or in the Pacific or homeland defense or presidential support or be our immediate response force. And, and that's the bill I get. And I'm trying to pay that bill with 48 fighter squadrons and nine A-10 attack squadrons. And as you might guess, uh, like any other bill, with a requirement to resource disconnect, there's pressure points 
and it doesn't always add up. And so we take a hit in our compete forward capability. We take a hit in our modernization. We take a hit in our immediate response force capability. We balance out those risks and we work through day to day. The hard pressure will come if and when there really is a high-end kinetic event. We'll have to make some hard, hard trades to get there. Over. Um, well, you mentioned F-22, so let me ask that, right? I mean, in many of these missions, an F-16 um, can accomplish the job, right? You don't have to necessarily put that time on those Block uh, 30 uh, F-22s. The older Block 20s are going to be retired, those 33 airplanes. I know this is a controversial uh, issue, um, right? But that they don't have the same mission systems. Uh, upgrading them will be too expensive. So the decision is retiring them will be a better choice uh, and cheaper. On the other hand, then the concern is, that you're then going to increase your utilization rates on the Block 30s you have for training, which is only going to wear out what is already an old airframe. I think people don't recognize that this airplane is already 30 years old, uh, roughly, right? I mean, the newest one is like 20 years old. Um, how, how is that going to work? And that assumes NGAD, right, the next generation air dominance airplane, arrives on time to relieve the F-22 in a disciplined manner. How, I mean, are we taking unnecessary risks not to put you at all potentially crosswise with senior leadership? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a valid question. And so, you know, every day when we work these topics, you know, we, we have, if they were easy, they'd have been solved, you know, by our, our young, great, dedicated action officers. And this is a hard discussion. It's a hard decision. But as the uh, Air Force has said, you know, the Block 20s are not a go-to-war airframe. And the cost per flying hour is significant. And so the Air Force has advocated to be able to, you know, divest those airplanes. I don't, I don't uh, have a worry bead so much on the hours that we would put on the Block 30s. It's just, but the one thing that I do keep in my cross check is uh, if and when we divest the Block 20s from doing the formal training unit mission, well, then I'll, we will have to basically harvest uh, block 30s from the remaining uh, F-22 Enterprise to do that mission. And so by definition, uh, we will uh, dilute, if you would, the combat power that we have to go to war any given day because we've had to bring uh, home block 30s uh, kind of back to Langley to execute that mission and they will not be available day to day for competition and conflict around the globe. So, so yes, the block 20s would we get a cost savings out of them, but that the bill would come as less combat power in a Block 30 fleet. That's really where the trade space would be. Um, in terms of NGAD, I'm pretty confident, more than pretty confident. The Block 30s have good wing life and good avionics and good capability to execute a hot handover uh, with NGAD. And so I think we've got a decent plan there. And I think uh, you'll see that come to fruition here in the future. Um, you're an uh, F-35 pilot. Not only are you an accomplished uh, F-15, 16, and you know, you've got 6,000 hours uh, in the air, um, you're uh, also an F-35 uh, pilot. Uh, and by the way, that's a great glamour shot of you leading uh, a 15 formation, by the way, uh, as, as pictures go. Uh, there, there is a concern that 35 faces a whole series of challenges. It is one of the truly great jets in terms of what it can do and deliver, even if it's uh, actual performance for a 15 or a 16 driver might be a little bit uh, wanting. Um, the older jets in the inventory have limited combat capability. It's a little bit of the bifurcation we see in the F-22 force. And second, the adaptive engine program at this point has been killed. 
that was going to be important for the block four version of the uh, airplane uh, to give it that extra power because we're running out of thrust and, and cooling. The decision has been made to uh, upgrade the existing engine to bring it up to the reliability and performance spec that it was supposed to have, but that's not until 28 or 2030. Are you at all concerned the F-35 could end up being in the same situation as a, you know, and some people in the audience will remember the Block 42 F-16, uh, which was the only U.S. fighter ever decertified from from combat uh, because of a lack of power. Could the F-35 fall into this compromised category at the end of the day where the older jets are undeployable and then the newer jets just don't have the power to, to really be as effective as they need to be or as reliable? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I don't think we run that risk. Um, as you mentioned, you know, as we add on different suites of hardware, software, operational flight program, uh, electronic warfare and advanced weapons, that that added capability comes with an added both, uh, you know, lift, if you would. There's weight in those heavy weapons, obviously. There's more power and cooling required for the advanced avionics. And so, but going forward, um, we've got margin in uh, both thrust and in what they call PTIMS, a power thermal management system, to keep our, our growth going. Um, I frankly need to get smarter on, you know, the engine core upgrade as compared to AETP, because you are correct. As we add on more, it's no different than a house built today compared to house built in 1980. There's just a lot more power demand on the, on the airframe. So it could rate limit how fast we bring on this high-end EW and this high-end software. But I don't think we're going to get to a juncture to where, um, you know, we have airframes that are go to war and airframes that are not, you know, uh, go to war. We're actually on a decent path. The thing that is interesting, you know, with respect to the F-35 is, you know, or the F-22 is there are more nations around the globe that can build a thermonuclear weapon. They can build a fifth gen fighter. This is hard, hard work. And so right now, as we look towards the TR-3 uh, upgrades, you know, especially coding a core processor into an integrated core processor. This is incredibly, incredibly hard work. Um, we should be surprised um, if there's not, you know, a little bit of a delay getting it uh, completely fielded. But I keep a pretty close tabs on it, and I'm pretty confident where we'll be both in, you know, two months, two years, uh, two decades with this airframe. Um, let me uh, quickly ask you uh, a munitions question. Uh, in the Indo-Pacific range matters, uh, whether it's for jets. Uh, so that's why you know a new engine that gives you longer range might be useful for an F-35. Um, and and just like you know any weapon that's longer range is important. The problem with the Indo-Pacific, where you were chief of staff for Pacific Air Forces and you served uh, and you were a commander at Ielson, uh, was you know even if you have a thousand mile weapon, you're you're still a thousand might be a thousand miles away from your target. Um, how, how do we, do we have, are we thinking the right way about the kind of longer range weapons we're going to need and the kind of quantities we're going to need them in? Because Ukraine is showing it doesn't matter how high end your system is, you're going to burn through a lot of it. Just like we burned through a whole lot of lower end systems when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, mean, I don't understand how people thought like a boutique number of really high end systems are going to work. The Ukrainians might actually burn through the hundred F-16s they need in pretty short order to accomplish their military missions, right? Do we do we have enough of the magazine depth and are we visualizing this fight in the right way that actually JASM-ERs and LRASMs 
might actually not be long range enough for what we need to do? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, you know, every really hard problem is a logistics problem. And if folks think that logistics are hard from the Belarusian border down to Kiev, you know, we got to be wide eyed about across several thousand miles of hostile ocean. And you're absolutely right with respect to magazine depth and the in industrial base that we have behind us. But in terms of where our focus is on our weapons, um, we actually have a decent focus on weapons capability and the capacity again is going to force us, I think, to rely on a lot of our allies and partners because it is not, a, it's no different than if you look today at arming Ukraine, there's a reason why the support for Ukraine is crowdsourced. It's just no one nation can actually right. fulfill that demand signal by themselves. And should there be a shooting war in another place of the globe, um, the same story will be the same story. We'll have to balance out and we'll have to monitor our magazine depth as we go forward. But in terms of what we're looking at, in terms of range of weapons, you know, how many miles they'll travel and the speed they'll travel and the sensor capability they'll have and how well they'll operate in a contested electromagnetic spectrum, I think we have a really pretty darn good uh, uh, suite and uh, portfolio of weapons. But yeah, you're right. Nothing this day and age with that kind of capability, range, you know, sensors, et cetera, is cheap. And so you got to balance that with, like you said, your your magazine depth. And that's going to take a lot of focus, a lot of energy that we have right now. And it's going to take uh, our allies to be there with us with their weapon stocks. Uh, the uh, commander of the 16th Air Force, Lieutenant General Tim Hawk, uh, is uh, going to be the next director of the National Security Agency and U.S. Uh, Cyber Command, replacing General Nakasone, who's done a tremendous job there. Um, at the time that your predecessor, uh, General Mobile Holmes, uh, said, hey, ACC has got to be the home of, of cyber for the Air Force. For some, that was uh, a little bit uh, controversial. But General Hawk has been really instrumental in the integration of cyber into air combat operations. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that transformation and how important that's been actually in delivering air power outcomes. Because there was, for some, it's like, no, it's not really connected. Whereas actually, if you look at it, it's it's all connected, right? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. If you look at what 16th Air Force brings, you know, stop and think about it for a minute. You know, just a, a year and a half ago, there are people that would look at 16th Air Force and they would wonder, you know, well, and it's okay to question. Our airmen need to be questioning uh, what we do. But there was airmen, uh, young and old, questioning like, well, why is a weather wing in 16th Air Force and in an ACC? And why is AFTAC uh, uh, in 16th Air Force and, you know, in ACC, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now you look, just take a quick snapshot at Ukraine. You know, knowing the weather, knowing when the ground is going to freeze and not freeze and knowing when the, the terrain is going to be navigable by, you know, armored vehicles is important. And it's in, helpful for an air campaign to know precisely what's going to go on with the weather. You know, with respect to AFTAC, they do a great job of, of measuring and metering and characterizing, you know, different isotopes around the globe. When you have security and safety challenges, um, at places like uh, Zaporizhia, you know, and Chernobyl, it's really helpful to have people who are experts uh, in these fields. And it goes on and on with our cyber experts and our ISR experts uh, feeding uh, that information to uh, not just an air campaign, but an overall joint campaign. And so they have meshed in well. You know, what our airmen are doing in 16th Air Force over in support of our 
allies and frankly, the bastion of freedom uh, and the fight that's going on in Europe is unbelievable, eye-watering. I wish we I wish we had more time and I wish we had a classified venue because I could give you some details of what these incredible airmen are doing, but we should all be proud of what they're doing. And you're right, it meshes in with the air campaign seamlessly. Matter of fact, I don't know how we would unseam it if we pulled it out because what they provide is the information that we have to have to have a successful uh, air campaign. I, I want to ask you a, a legacy uh, question, even though you're going to go on to other uh, great and good things. And as we joked before, you might actually be able to take a vacation somewhere without a cell phone uh, and enjoy yourself without having anybody uh, uh, waking you up in the middle of the night. You, you have an extraordinarily challenging job. You have an older Air Force uh, than it's ever been in some respects, even though you're getting F-35s and, and, and 15s uh, in greater numbers, but you're not getting them in the numbers uh, that you need. When it comes to special mission aircraft, you mentioned the wedge tail. Um, you know, we need this capability, but we're not going to get that early warning capability. Um, on the air battle management side, you know, we had hoped that, uh, you know, the E-8 would be replaced by a space base, uh, you know, the Joint Stars airplane. Uh, so you have a career management issue, right, with air battle managers, right? On, on each one of, you know, you, you don't have enough pilots, right? So you're coping with the tactics, the strategy, and, and the fieldable air forces. When, when you look back at your tenure, uh, General Kelly, wh where do you feel like you've moved a needle? And what do you think the top item or items are for your successor, General Wilsbach, to sort of pick up and focus on? Yeah, no, great question. You know, every commander, whether it be squadron commander to a numbered Air Force commander, wing commander, MAGCOM commander, you know, they, uh, they've got an idea of what they'd like to get done in their tenure. And uh, you just hope that you get most of it done. I'm really uh, excited that we've got uh, rapid funding for these seven laid in. Um, I'm excited that we've taken ACE, our Agile Combat Employment, out of niche into mainstream. Um, our different command control and electronic warfare systems, whether it be EC37 or E11 Bacon, uh, those, you know, for, for a guy that grew up flying small airplanes, it's really the big airplane accomplishments that are probably going to be the most relevant for the years to come. As we already mentioned, getting to 72 new fighters a year is key. Uh, I asked my team, when's the last time we have actually accomplished that and back in history? And they've struggled to, to go back as far to actually find out there. Um, I'm actually pleased that we got to a force presentation model uh, that actually allowed for ready to, to maintain readiness within the force. You know, for 20 plus years, we... Uh, consume the Air Force at a rate that exceeds our ability to generate the Air Force. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's money, morale, or muscle tissue, or combat power. If you consume it at a rate that exceeds your ability to generate it, that doesn't normally end well. And now our right. four-bin F4Gen for our mission generation elements allows us to show the downstream impacts of overconsumption of the Air Force. And so there's a good list of stuff that I'm pleased that we got across the goal line, but there's probably at least an equally long list of stuff that I wish I'd have got further along or done a better job of getting. As far as when I hand off ACC to General Wilsbach, first of all, he's the perfect leader to come in here with his time in the Pacific, already established as a four-star commander. Um, he'll, he'll just be great uh, to be in here. And I think that he will be able to further some of the efforts that I couldn't get as far as, as I want to. What I would say and what I will say to him when he gets here is, and it kind of goes and scratches at some of the questions you're getting at as far as where are our big investments at right now? 
with uh, the secretary's operational imperatives or with our hardware, with our software. A lot of our big investments mature, you know, kind of in the out years. And I'll just leave the out years, you know, kind of uh, nebulous um, into the 2030s. And so, but we've got to be smart about getting from today to the 2030s because, you know, one of the quotes that I reference, you know, from years gone back is when former Secretary Rumsfeld gave an answer to a question years ago and his answer he kind of got pilloried in the press when he said to a question in Kuwait, he said, well, you go to war with the military you have, not the military or want or wish you had. And although his answer was criticized, he was actually correct. And so whether it be Ukraine last year or Russia last year or our nation with its allies in a year or two years or five years, we'll go to, we'll go to war with the military we have, not the military we want or wish we had or we've invested in to mature into the 2030s. And so for General Wilsbach, navigating those next 48 years, he's the absolutely the right person to do so because he understands the risks, he understands the capabilities, he understands the adversaries out in the Pacific. And so I can't think of a better person to take that job. And I think those are the challenges that he'll work with every day that we've touched on here. Sir, uh, thanks very much. Uh, congratulations on a, on a hard done, uh, hard job done right. Uh, and uh, open door, we'd love to welcome you back on the program in any capacity. Uh, and, and we wish you the best. Have you decided, uh, you and the, and the Kelly family decided uh, what's next? No, we haven't. You know, in the military, you know, it doesn't matter if you're putting in a leave slip or you're putting in a retirement. You know, first of all, it's a request. And every request in the military, whether it be take a day leave or to retire, falls under the heading of, quote unquote, subject to the requirements of the service. And so I will take my leave and I will uh, take my off-ramp uh, subject to the requirements of the service. So, and they'll tell me when it's time to get out of the way and go do something different. Um, you'll see me in aisle five of Home Depot wearing an orange apron uh, somewhere <laughs> sometime. Uh, but I serve at the pleasure of the chief and the secretary uh, and the president, and I'll do so uh, until they tell me to please get out of the way. And, and it's been an honor for 37 plus years to do so. And uh, we're trying to make a difference every day. Well, sir, thanks very much uh, again. Uh, very much uh, appreciate it and look forward to welcoming you back on this program in any future uh, capacity, whether you're wearing stars or you're wearing an orange apron. You bet. No, look forward to it. Thanks for your time and the best of luck to you as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.